Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Billy Gifford. I'm the executive pastor on staff. Good morning, Joe. Okay, well, if you haven't been tracking with us these past few weeks, we've been going through Galatians, just a very straightforward, what does the book of Galatians say? What's it about? Uh, and if it's okay, I'm going to attempt to summarize Galatians with a nerdy chemistry joke. Oh, let's Okay, go. yeah. Uh, you probably heard this in fifth grade, at least if you're around my age. Uh, but I'm not, it's not actually funny, okay? So don't laugh. I know it's, it's a joke, but it's not meant to laugh. But it will help you remember, I think, well, I hope, what Paul's trying to speak to the Galatians. It goes like this. Two men walk into a uh, coffee shop. <laughs> One says to the barista, can I get a glass of H2O? And then the other guy says, you know what? I'll take some H2O too. <laughs> okay, that's when nerds like me would laugh and say, ha, H2O2, that's hydrogen peroxide. That'll kill you. That's funny. Get it? Um, <laughs> okay. That's a good one, right? Take that home. Teach it to your kids. Hydrogen peroxide, don't drink it. H2O2. Translation, though. Uh, the message that Paul is trying to give to the Galatians is this, that if you add even just one atom of works to the gospel formula, to the gospel foundation, you would have created something deadly. You can't have that. And so we're up to Galatians 3. Yes, you'll remember this, the hydrogen peroxide. Uh, we're up to Galatians 3 now. And so um, I'm going to read really Galatians 3 verses 1 through 18. But I'm not going to do that until the very end. Because Galatians 3 really is just a continuation of thought from Galatians 1 and 2. And so I'm going to take a minute to summarize and recap. And then at the very end, we'll hit Galatians 3. So we'll get there. <clears throat> but... Um, so it's important and vital that we understand the situation going on in Galatia in that day. And the reason is, is because the battle that Paul fought and won then is happening today. And I would even argue that it is the majority belief in this country, the majority belief that he was coming up against, that he said multiple times that if a man preaches this belief, he is to be accursed. So what is this belief? What was going on is very simply it was this. That in the four churches of South Galatia, which Paul had planted himself, there were false teachers coming in and teaching his spiritual children that it wasn't enough to be a Christian, but you had to be a Jewish Christian. In other words, faith in Christ plus circumcision. Faith in Christ plus, plus kosher. Faith in Christ plus the Jewish works of the law. There were false teachers coming in and trying to add that Adam, uh, Adam of oxygen into the water. And so Paul wasn't having it. And so I would say it's the majority belief in this country today, because if you were to go out in the streets and say to any man or woman walking around, what is your basis for the future? What, what, on what grounds would you hope to have a better life after this one if there was one? And I would argue nine out of 10 people would say something like this. Well, I've been a pretty good person. I've, you know, I've, been good to my neighbor. I've tried not to do any harm. I haven't killed anyone. You know, I you know, stumble every now and then. For the most part, I'm pretty good. That is the majority belief in this country of what people would base their future on, if there is one. <clears throat> and that's the false gospel that Paul condemns. Now, before I get into that, I want to say on the front end, good works are a major part of the Christian life. A major part. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he said, let your light shine before men so that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's a huge part of the Christian life. 
but your good works must rest on top of your faith. If you flip that, you've got a false gospel. And if you turn that upside down, that is to say, I have faith for eternal life because of my good works, rather than because I have faith, I produce good works. Those are very different gospels. And the majority of this country doesn't know that. And so it's good news that your good works can rest on your faith because then you can have assurance of salvation because then you're not reliant upon your own self-righteousness. But if you flip that, it's bad news because then you're just building on yourself because the real basis is Christ. And on Christ, we have faith. And on our faith, we can work out our our salvation with, with laboring through love and people can see our good works from there. But once you flip that, you've got something completely different. And so one way is to accept the righteousness of Christ and the other way is to work your own righteousness and hope one day you've got enough. And that is the issue Paul's addressing here. Whether you depend on Christ and believe in him for salvation or whether you depend on your own good works and just work really hard and hope, hope you get there. So two weeks ago, Christian introduced the letter to the Galatians, uh, just giving a little background about Paul and just how extreme he was and how quickly he went from attacking Christianity to now defending Christianity. And in Galatians 1, he opens the defense of Christianity with quite a punch, right? I mean, he comes out guns blazing. Um, and if it's okay, just this once, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase and translate uh, what he's saying in our vernacular that we understand, just so we can get the meaning of what Paul is saying when he says, when he starts defending the gospel. So just do this once. So Paul says, if anyone comes preaching a gospel different than what we have already preached, which is salvation by faith, to hell with him. He says some strong language. We think that's strong, but for Paul, it was a matter of life and death because that false gospel, whoever's preaching that's going to drag thousands down to hell with him. And he better go there first before he brings others with him. That's what Paul is saying. So kind of strong, kind of extreme, but important. And it's not that Paul was having like a personal vendetta or venom against these people because he includes himself. He even includes an angel from heaven in this message. He says, even if I come preaching, if I flip the gospel or an angel from heaven, let him be accursed. The status of the person matters nothing. It's the, it's the message that counts. So this is an important lesson. Some of us actually probably need to hear this. It is not the messenger which validates the message. It is the message which validates the messenger. In other words, I don't care if you're a professor of theology. I don't care if you're a leader of a denomination, if you're a senior pastor for 50 years, or if you're an angel from heaven, Paul says. It's not your status that matters. It's the message you carry that gives you authority in the church. We need to hear this. So Paul was being accused of wanting uh, to please men and be accepted and make everyone happy. That's why he was lowering the Jewish standard of saying, you don't need to be circumcised. He's being accused of not receiving the gospel firsthand. He's being accused of uh, not being a real apostle, all these things. It was the, and so these false teachers were attacking him kind of in that classic way where if you can't discredit his message, well, then try to discredit the messenger and hopefully people will then discredit his message. So Paul's being attacked. That's why he spends a good amount of time. If you were here uh, last week, uh, Tyler shared a little bit about this, about how, I mean, he's, Paul spends a good amount of time talking about himself in the first parts of this letter, but proving that he was not doing it to please men. And so I want to summarize 
the recap up to Galatians 3 with three main points, okay? Three main points. First one would be order of events, the argument of apostles, and the point of Paul. Paul's point, but it flows with the structure, point of Paul. So, order of events. And this is really just to help you follow along, because when I first read Galatians, the, the popular verses stuck out to me, and I was like, amen, but the whole story, I was like, I actually don't know what's happening. <laughs> so I had to read it multiple times in different translations to really understand. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you seven markers just to help you follow along, just the order of events, very simply, okay? So the first one, Paul says this, I was a zealous Jew, and I violently attacked Christianity, and I violently defended Judaism. And I was better than all of you, by the way. Second point. He says, then I met Jesus, and he picked me up, he turned me around, and he spoke to me the gospel directly. I didn't go to Peter, I didn't go to another apostle to hear what is the gospel, Jesus himself spoke it to me. I didn't go to headquarters in Jerusalem to get affirmation from the apostles. Instead, I went off to Arabia for three years to think it over. Number three, after that, I went to visit Peter, he says, for 15 days. I was just going to get acquainted with Peter. I wasn't trying to get a master's of divinity from Peter in a fast track, 15 days. I was just there to meet him. And in fact, I didn't meet anyone else except James. Number four, he says, then for 14 years, 14 years, I went around preaching the gospel everywhere. And then some people from Jerusalem came looking after me saying, Paul's preaching a false gospel. And Paul says, well, I didn't know what to do about that. So I decided well, I'll just go up to Jerusalem. We'll sort it all out. So he's been preaching the gospel for 14 years at this point, and is prompted by God to respond and go to Jerusalem to sort it out. And he goes, he brings Barnabas with him, who is a Jewish Christian, and he brings Titus with him, who is a Gentile Christian. Strategic. Number five, so those three, Paul, Barnabas, and Titus, go from Antioch to Jerusalem to chat with Peter, James, and John, right? It's kind of three on three. What I imagine here is like Avengers Civil War, just... <laughs> You got Iron Man and his gang and, and Captain America and his gang. And you're like, oh, are there, are there about to be sparks? Who knows? Um, but what was significant about Antioch? Tyler shared in detail about this last week. But Antioch was actually the first place in which Christianity stood alone as a separate religion from Judaism. Up until that point, Christians were considered just eccentric Jews. Like in the circle of Judaism, Christian was just on the edge. But it was in Antioch that such an amount of... Gentiles believed that it was very clear that Christianity and Judaism were totally separate. And there, there, there was marked out Christianity was a new religion. Number six, in Jerusalem, now they're, they're meeting, they had a private meeting with the reputed leaders of the church, Peter, James, and John. And, and Paul says that some people snuck into that little private meeting in the conference room and just to spoil Paul's ministry and to tattletale, basically. And they, they pointed at Titus and was like, hey, he's not circumcised. It's tattletaling. But Paul says, we didn't budge an inch. We didn't give them an inch. They, those guys shouldn't have been there. Um, but it was in that moment that the, the leaders of that church, Peter, James, and John, didn't challenge Paul on that. And they actually affirmed him and said, Titus is fine. They didn't add a qualification. And that was a big moment. That was a big, big moment. So there was harmony between the three of them. The three and three were in harmony. And at this point, Peter, James, and John say to Paul, put it there. Like, let's shake on it. It seems you have the gospel. God is blessing you and we bless you. We will not divide. We are partners in the gospel. And they blessed him and went on his way. And number seven, this is the last point that he shares, shares 
This is when Peter then goes from Jerusalem to visit Antioch. And this is a sad point in Paul's life, probably a difficult point for him to, to, to bring back up. But it was when Peter came and the two great apostles of Christ had an argument. <laughs> they had an argument. Peter and Paul. There's an old proverb that says, rob Peter to pay Paul. I don't know if you heard that. It comes from this. And Paul relates this argument in, the, in Galatians to prove and show again that he wasn't about just being accepted by the top dogs. He didn't care about acceptance and approving, approval of men. He cared about the gospel. And so they had an argument. And so what was that argument? The argument of apostles, my second point. This is how it happened. Peter had a moment where he reverted back to his old ways, kind of reverting back to type, which was being afraid of people. You see, when we think of Peter, we think he was like this really bold guy. Of in himself, he was not bold and brave. It was only the Holy Spirit that made him bold and brave. And so when the Holy Spirit filled him, he could get up and preach to thousands. Besides that, he was just a normal guy like us, getting nervous around people. And when Peter came to Antioch, God had convinced Peter that the Gentiles were just as much God's people as the Jews. And so he had no problem eating food with them that was not kosher. He was perfectly happy to sit down and have a meal that was not made from a proper butcher and eating a meal in a Gentile way with Gentiles because he was a brother to them in the Lord. There was no problem. But then some of his Jewish brothers came back from Jerusalem to visit as well. And that's when he pulled back and got a little nervous. And he said, you know what? I think I'm going to eat separately with my Jewish brothers. And so in one fellowship, worshiping one Lord, they had two separate tables. And they couldn't sit down and eat together. And it was Peter's cowardice that did that. Now, look, before we go blaming Peter, <laughs> we've all been there. I mean, probably more than we can count where we have been in situations where we knew the right thing to do, the right thing to say. But because we were afraid of what people would say or think, we held back or we froze. And so Paul is having this moment where he sees that they've achieved this unity in the gospel but then he sees Peter pulling this way and he notices that, man, if Peter keeps going this way and bringing others with him, for the first time in church history, there'd be a split. There'd be two denominations in Christianity. And I just want to say, though, real quick, it would have been right to split over this issue. Paul would have done that. So Paul, with great courage, said to Peter, the first pastor of the church, the top dog, he says, Peter, how dare you? Don't you remember that we Jews had to believe in Christ to get right with God? And we learn uh, an important thing from this, um, and I want you to hear me in this. It's, we learn that truth matters more than unity here. We don't think about that. We like unity. Unity's great. But when truth is on the line, even Paul, the great apostle, and Peter are to be seen at odds with one another publicly when truth's on the line. There was no let's agree to disagree about this issue and get under this banner called unity because that's not the unity that Jesus approves of. Paul was willing to, I mean, he could have just pulled him aside, right? It says he did it in front of everyone. He could have pulled Peter and said, hey, Peter, hey, just talk to me real quick. I noticed you were eating here and then you pulled back. You know, what's going on? I understand you want to, you know, give a good impression to your buddies, but come on, man. But he did it in front of everyone. He rebuked him publicly because truth was on the line. And so outside of truth, we can't unify. And we have to have the courage to stand up against that which is false, like Paul did here. And so you might be asking, kind of like I was asking, well, what's the big deal? 
Like, the issue is where Peter eats his breakfast. Um, so what? Like, who cares? Uh, but behind the scenes, there was a big problem because Peter was born a Jew and raised a Jew. And in the Jewish culture, they would not have a meal that's, that's not kosher. See, Peter was brought up with this kind of hesitation when it comes to eating. And if you remember back in Acts chapter 10, uh, it took a direct vision from God to break that in him to where he could finally go to the house of Cornelius and, and go inside and have a meal with him. And so here we find years later, Peter's at Antioch, where most of the believers were not of Jewish background. They didn't have the Jewish law. They were all Gentiles. And he was quite happy to sit down and have a meal with them until some of his old buddies showed up. And he stopped. And so Paul confronts him to his face and says, Peter, how dare you? And this is where we get to Paul's point. This is where the meat of this is. So it's at this point in Paul's rebuke to Peter that he introduces a new word that he hasn't used in this letter just yet. Does anyone know what that word is? Just a guess. Justified. Justified. This is in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. I'll read it to you. Paul says this, to Peter in the presence of them all. He says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if we, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Okay, so the word justified appears here and the word means to prove blameless. It's used in the sense of proving someone blameless. So for example, if a husband gets late, gets home late from work, right? Wife says, where have you been? Or it's six o'clock. We all know what that really means. That means prove yourself blameless, justify yourself. You better be, I mean, that engine better have fallen out of your car. Like, for you to be this late. You better have driven to heaven and back with gold on the streets for you to be this late. Justify yourself for, for your actions. In the court of law, it's used in the terms of guilty or innocent. And in those days, the terms were condemned or justified. And it was one of those two words that a prisoner anxiously waited, wondering which one it would be to hear as he sat in the dark accused of certain crimes. And if that prisoner heard the word condemned, then off he went to prison or in many cases death. But if he were heard the word justified, then off he went from that court a free man, never to be charged with that crime again. And so why is it important that we understand what Paul, all this talk about justification and being justified, why does that matter to us right now? Precisely for this reason. And it's that God has set a date on his calendar when you and I will stand in the dark before him. He has set a date and he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world one by one. See, you and I are only on bail for the moment. That's our position in this life. We're out on bail. But when we stand before him, we will have to justify the way we've lived, the words we've said, the deeds we've done, the, the thoughts we've had, the, the feelings that have entered our hearts, all of it, we'll have to justify it before God. He gave us this life and he expected us to live perfectly and blamelessly before him. 
And when we stand before God, he'll look at every single part of our lives, every idle word that slipped off our tongue, every thought that went through our minds. And he will either say condemned or justified. And you and I know perfectly well that God cannot say of any single one of us, of our own, that we are justified. That's a problem. So how do we get right with God? How can we ever be innocent in his sight and be blameless before him? You see, this is actually the greatest need in life. Your greatest need is not food and water and clothing and shelter and security and purpose and acceptance and all that in, in the humanly sense. Your greatest need in life is to be justified before God, to be proven innocent and blameless in his sight. So that in the day that the whole world does stand before him, he can point to you and say, you are my good books. You are righteous. You are justified. Come on in. And how can that be? That's what we need to answer. And so the point that Paul wants to make quite clear to Peter and to the rest of the Jews that are listening in is this, that you will never get that way by trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Never. It won't happen. And this is the heart of the issue, that a man who tries to keep the Ten Commandments in order to get to heaven will find himself in hell. On the flip side, a man, no matter how bad he has been, when he's turned from his sins and put his trust in Christ, will find that he gets to look forward to heaven. This is the issue. It's a big difference. And so Paul makes this point by sharing some of his own experience. And he says in verse 19, chapter 2, he says, Through the law... I died to the law so that I might live for God. In other words, he's saying, I tried that old system. I tried being perfect. I went down that road as hard and as fast as I could, faster and harder than anyone else, and only to find out it was a dead end. And so I gave up on it. I died to it. I ended that. And once I did, I was finally able to be live for God. I was finally set free to live for God. But how? Because you see, it wasn't just the law and the commandments that killed him. It was also the cross. The cross. And this is an incredible thing he says in the next verse. He says an amazing thing that we need to probably think about. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Not only did he die to the law, but there up on that cross when Jesus died, Paul died. That's what he says. You see, when it comes to the cross, we all know, or at least we've heard because we've been around church enough, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But Paul's revealing something here that says something in addition to that. And that is, not only did Jesus die on that cross, but I died on that cross. That self-life that just chose to live for me and be about mine, number one, put up there and died. It's one thing to believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. It's another thing to believe that you also died up there with him so that you can actually have a new life, not an improved life, a new life. And so Paul says this beautiful phrase, Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So he says to Peter, <laughs> Peter, once you've been to the cross, you're on your way to resurrection. You can finally have that true life that you've worked so hard to try to actually accomplish, but you can never do it. But in the cross, you can, because it brings resurrection life. And so people may, people may say of Paul, well, I saw Paul walking around. Paul would say, no, you didn't. You saw someone else. 
That's Christ in me. He says, I no longer live. It is Christ in me that's living. And that is the message. It is not about improving your life to try to make it acceptable to God. It's not about trying to live up to certain standards, but rather kill that life. Be done with it. End it. Christ is actually the only life that's acceptable to God. So take his life. He's giving it to us as a gift. Take it. And let the fruit of Christ, let the fruit of the Spirit come forth from your life. Not the fruit of a new and improved Mr. Self. You may be able to produce some good fruit, but even at the end of the day, yeah, that's your own, you're relying on your own strength. It's self-righteous fruit. It's, it's no good to God. And so what Paul is saying is you don't just start the journey, the Christian journey by faith, but you live the Christian journey by faith. It's not that you go to the cross and believe and have faith and be done with faith, but he says, the life I now live, I live by faith every step of the way. You walk by faith. And so if you're not a Christian yet, this is how you begin. <laughs> not by trying so hard to be a Christian, not by trying to keep the Ten Commandments, not by trying to live up to certain standards, but by coming to the cross and simply saying, Jesus, take away my sins. I've tried. I've tried to be good. And I would argue those who don't think that uh, they're bad enough have never tried to be good. It's only when you actually try to be good you realize, wow, that didn't work. <laughs> you know, you, you just bring up some of the simple, like, hey, you ever told a lie? Well, <laughs> okay. So those who try to be good, that's why the law is given, you know, will find out, wow, that's not working. And so the way to Christ is Jesus, help me. I cannot, it's, it's this admission of guilt, actually. It's that prisoner waiting in the dark saying, I actually am guilty. And I can't do it. And I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried. Can you make me righteous? I believe you. That is the way to be justified before God. Okay, this leads to chapter three. We're there, finally, <laughs> chapter three. And we're up there. You see, one of the most dangerous temptations for the Christian is this, and that's having started by this faith to go back to works. That having started by trusting in Christ to make you a Christian, that's what everyone who's a Christian did. You didn't become a Christian because you tried. You trusted in him. Having started there to go back to trying to be a Christian. It's that thing that Tyler mentioned last week near the end of his sermon, where he said it goes from you, you get to, to you ought to. There's a big difference. That having started by letting him do it in you, you go back trying to do it yourself. Having started with pure water, you go back to adding an atom of oxygen. And Paul's warning in chapter three is to never mix the fruit of good works with the root of faith. You don't mix the two. All right, so I'm gonna read Galatians three, verses one through 18. In a, I'm gonna translate it in a translation you probably never heard because it's, it's my own paraphrase. So... Um, <laughs> I have learned from different people that occasionally it's good to just write out the scriptures in your own words to help you understand it. And for this part, it was super helpful for me because there was a lot I didn't understand. Um, so this is a paraphrase of Galatians chapter three. And I just want you to listen. If you have your, your Bibles open, you can kind of follow along and track and see where I'm at. But allow me just to read this to you. Ready? He says, you stupid Galatians. What evil sorcerer has hypnotized you and driven you to insanity? You had a revelation of Christ as clear as day, 
and you understood the meaning of his death and resurrection. Please educate me on this. How did you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? By doing all the law commanded or by faith when you heard the gospel of Christ? Did you hit your head and get a concussion? You started by the Spirit, but now are wanting to finish off and seek perfection through the flesh? You have switched sides and joined the enemy. You already suffered so much for the sake of the gospel. Don't throw it all away. Tell me once more, because I'm having a hard time believing what I'm hearing. The one who gave you the Holy Spirit and works miracles among you, are you saying that was all because you worked really hard at obeying the Jewish law? Or rather, was it because you heard the good news and believed? Now let's back up a bit. Consider Father Abraham. The scripture says he believed God and therefore was accounted as righteous. Sound familiar? You and I know the real truth here, that it is those who follow in his footsteps and truly trust in God for their salvation that are counted as children of Abraham. This shouldn't surprise us. The scripture made clear well beforehand that God would justify the Gentiles through faith. Abraham was one of the first to ever hear the gospel when God told him, through you, Abraham, every single nation on earth will be able to receive grace. Clearly, it is those who have faith, just like Abraham did, that receive grace, just like Abraham did. Now, let me remind you, those who choose to trust in the works of the law are under God's curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not keep every single thing written in the book of the law at all times. It really should be clear to all by now that one cannot win God's favor by keeping the Jewish law, unless you have forgotten what the prophet Habakkuk wrote. Quote, it is only those who live by faith that are counted as righteous. You see, to live by the law and to live by faith are complete opposites. For the law would say it is only those who perfectly obey every single law of God without one tiny slip that are counted as righteous. Thank God that Christ paid such a high price to rescue us from certain doom through that system by taking the curse of our wrongdoing upon himself. When I think of the old wooden cross on which Jesus died, I think of how high a price it was to pay. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is strung up on a tree. Christ suffered in this way so that the blessing of Abraham would reach the entire world as well. Now all people in all places and at all times would be able to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. Brothers, let me use a common analogy. When two people make an agreement and sign the dotted line, neither can change it. No one can add or subtract from the written and signed agreement. Now we know that God made a promise to Abraham and to his descendant. But read carefully. It does not say descendants, plural, but rather descendant, singular, referring to one person, that is Christ. What I mean is this. God made a promise to Abraham that he would save through faith and nothing would cause God to break that promise. Not even the law, which came 430 years later, would be able to change the promise already made. If it were to change the promise, well then, the promise was no promise at all. For if God's gift of salvation was dependent on the law and our perfect obedience to it at that, then that is diametrically opposed to God's gift of salvation being dependent upon faith as it was with Abraham. It cannot be both. And in fact, God has granted the gift of righteousness to Abraham by a promise he made with him. Okay. <clears throat> you follow along? It's a long passage. It might have been the longest passage you've ever heard from this, this pulpit right here. Um, 
But if you want, you can go back and listen. But that summarizes Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 through 18. And I hope you kind of pulled out a little bit of what's going on there. And so I'm going to break it down just the last few minutes, then we'll be done. And just two, two things that Paul's really saying. He's doing two things. He's, number one, questioning their sanity, big time. And number two, he's quoting their scriptures, very simply. And so Paul's saying, when he's questioning their sanity, he's saying, Galatians, what happened? Are you outside of your minds? Like you were having a wonderful sail going right along, just the wind of the Spirit was pushing you. And you decided to pull the sail down, get out your oars and start rowing. And the tide was against you. And you ended up shipwrecked. The Spirit was poured out. What were you thinking? Like, have you lost your minds? Come on. That is to say that you started by hearing with faith and the Spirit of God was with you and now you're going back to works. That having begun by the Spirit, you're going back to the flesh. That having begun by the grace of God empowering you, you think you can finish in your own strength. Come on, that's foolish. Very simply, then he goes to quote the scriptures. And he mentions a man named Abraham. We all have heard of Abraham. And it was long ago that Abraham was standing at that tent entrance outside in the wilderness somewhere. He was looking up at that dark night sky, you know, looking at the, the, the countless amounts of stars in the sky. And, you know, he's, he's old, he's alone, he doesn't have any child, he, he's no son. And he hears a voice from heaven speak. And he says, Abraham, you see those stars up there? You're going to have a bigger family than those one day. There will be more people in your family than stars in the sky. Now, remember, uh, Abraham was old. He's like 100 years old. Sarah was not far behind him. But what did Abraham say? He said, God, I believe you. I trust you. Let it be. I trust you. And the Bible records that night that Abraham became righteous, that God counted him as righteous because he trusted. And Paul says, you, can't you see that the true sons of Abraham are not the Jews or the Arabs or any other physical descendants, but rather those who, like Abraham, say to God, I believe you, I trust you, let it be. Then 400 and... 30 years later, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with these two tablets of stone, and they carry a very different tone, right? The promise, the difference between a law and a promise, the promise is an I will. You know, he, he says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And Abraham believed. And he's saying to us, I will make you righteous by faith. Do we believe? But the promise is an I will. The law came down with the tone of you will. Thou shalt. And the difference is like, I mean, imagine a wedding. Go to a wedding. This is where we hear the, the vow is the promise. And it's in the vow that the key phrase is, I will do this for you and be this for you. I mean, imagine how strange it would be if the groom just opened up his paper. He's going to read it. And he's, he's crying because it's an emotional moment. And he says, thou shalt do this for me. And then thou shalt do this for me. And then thou shalt with the laundry. And then he goes down the list. <laughs> Boo to that, right? Everyone, if you were in the crowd, you'd be like, oh, this is awkward. <laughs> and then the bride responds, okay, well, if thou shalt with the trash and thou shalt with the lawn, and okay. That's law. That's not a promise. A promise is I will do this and I will be this for you no matter what. That is a promise, and that's a big difference. <laughs> 
You see, the law actually just puts you under a curse because the goal of the law, it really all it does is reveal to you how, how short you've fallen. The pass mark is 100% for the law. 96 is good, but it's not good enough. 98, better, not enough. 99, real good, not enough. The pass is 100%. And if you don't reach that standard, it says you're doomed. Verse 10, as for as many as of the works of the law are under a curse. If we don't meet that standard of 100%, we are under a curse. Heavy. But I'll end with this and we can get the band to come on up. The good news is actually that Christ has reached that standard for us. This is where the good news comes in because he's redeemed us from the curse of the law by taking our place and putting himself under the the curse for us. This is the glorious good news of the gospel, the good news of the cross. The curse that it's on yours and mine and everyone's head because we could not live up to that standard, Jesus comes in and he says, "I'll, I'll pay it, I'll take it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law in order that in him, the blessing of Abraham, the ability to receive that saving grace would be made available to all and to anyone who believes. So Paul went to great lengths to convince the Galatians to not add any more oxygen atoms to the water. He went to great lengths to prove that the Christian life starts by faith uh, is, is walked by faith, is lived by faith, is perfected by faith, and it ends by faith. It's by faith. He says, the life I now live, I live by faith, by trusting in him, the son of God, who loved me and became that curse for me. He gave himself up for me. And why does this matter to some of us? Some of us are already Christians, but the warning is, well, have you lost your joy? Have you lost your peace? Because I know in times in my life, and I know others in, in, in my friend circle, there have been times that we have unintentionally gone back to that system of works where we were so overflowing with the love of God that we just did things and then we went back to, I'm supposed to do this, so I'm doing it. And, and before long, you run out of steam. We've been there. We know people who are on fire for Jesus. Years later, they're, they're, they've sputtered out. The, the heat of the sun has caused them to wither. The, the, the vines, the, the weeds have choked them out. It's because they've gone back to law. The life we live, but we live by faith. The faith that says, Jesus, I'm stuck. It's just honest. I'm stuck under this curse and I can't get out. But I see that you told Abraham the plan a long ago, that it was those who trusted in you, not just to get in the kingdom, but to live in the kingdom. I heard a story once of a preacher counseling a couple and they came to him saying, you know, we just are so impatient with our kids and we can't, can you pray for us that we would have more patience with our kids? And this bold preacher responds saying, no. Why? Because you're not patient people. You're not gonna get more patient. Instead, I'm gonna pray that you die to yourself and let the life of Christ live through you. We're all in situations in our lives that we could probably point at where we're trying and failing. And it's because yourself will always fail, but Christ will always win. Christ has the victory. And if you're living in victory, it's because it's Christ in you that's having the victory. And so Paul's saying, guys, don't go back there. It's, it's a pit. It's a dead end. Live by faith. Let, let Christ be patient in you and through you. Let Christ uh, have the strength to, to turn from temptation 
in you and through you. Let the life of Christ be the one that gives that word of kindness and wisdom. Let Christ be the one to do all that. You can keep trying. You can try for a few years. You'll, you'll end up passed out on the road, unconscious, just exhausted with nothing to give. So it's just trusting. There's a hymn that I heard, I saw, I read. That says, I think it's titled The Shadow of the Cross. But it says this, in the shadow of the cross, in the, in the shadow of the cross, let me hide. There my Savior from my sins bled and died. There the precious cleansing fount flows so freely from Calvary's mount. In the shadow of the cross, let me hide. And that's Paul's message. He's saying, don't leave the cross. Don't leave the fact that you're dead and it's Christ living in you. Don't go back to that system of works. So y'all can go ahead and stand. <clears throat> This is good news. This is really good news. Uh, there, are, there are some in this room I know that, that are, have not entered the blessing. That are, if you're honest, you're still under that curse because you're trying. And maybe that was your excuse for not entering the blessing because you're like, no, I'm actually trying. I have really good intentions. And I guess I'll share this, another story. The last, last one, I promise. This one's from the Bible though. Um, in Matthew chapter nine, there's a blind man that comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's asking for healing. He wants to see again. And Jesus asks him this very simple question. He says, do you believe I'm able to do this? Do you believe I'm able to do this to you? And that man says, yes, I do. And he walked away healed, completely able to see. And what's happening right now in this room is God is offering that gift of salvation, that gift of righteousness and he's simply just saying, some of you are like, I've actually been trying. I've been trying to get over this sin and I can't. I've been trying to, to find a, a peace with God and I've not been able to find it. So I go to church. I'm trying to earn it. I'm trying to get it. But I'm, I read the Bible. I'm doing all these things and I'm still not there. And God is saying to you very simply, you're asking him, I can't be righteous. Can you make me righteous? And he's just asking you, do you believe I can? Do you believe I can? Because if so, come on in. If so, you are now counted as righteous and that curse is gone. And so we're not gonna have a team come up. Uh, I just want everyone uh, just to ponder, where are you at? Are you still under the curse or have you gone back under that works-based system to where you have lost your joy and your peace and you couldn't really pinpoint why? And I would just say, come back to trusting in Jesus. Come back to the foot of the cross. Never leave the shadow of the cross. Don't leave it. It's there you find life. It's there yourself finds death. You need to remain there your whole life at the cross. And lastly, I do want to just to poke it a little bit more, at least extend the invitation for those who've never done this before. So very simply, if you have never entered into the kingdom of God, if you've never received righteousness, if you've never been made right with God and you know it, you've been trying, I just want you to raise your hand real quick. Just want to, just a brief second. If that's you, if you're like, man, I've, I've tried, but I've never trusted in Christ. I've never done that. If that's you, just raise your hand real quick. Praise God. For everyone else in the room, I want you to really just step back and say, Lord, have I gone back? Have I lost my mind? 
as Paul would say. Put me back under the foot of the cross. That's where life flows on that Mount of Calvary. So let me pray. Jesus, we trust you. Jesus, we need you. Jesus, we just admit we are guilty. We have nothing of ourselves. We could do nothing without you. Lord, we have nothing, Lord. And we just pray, God, that you would rescue us, that you would save by faith. We thank you that you made a promise long ago that you would send a savior, that you would make a way when there was no way. And even for us who've maybe been walking you for years, let us turn back and, and, and reflect and remember the price that you paid to become the curse for us. Lord, would you save us this morning from our sins? Come and move in us, Holy Spirit, we pray. We trust you in Jesus' name, amen.